The Behemoth Brewing Company presents the Department of Conversation with Pat Brittenden. Behemoth, give me something hoppy. Welcome back to another edition of the Department of Conversation brought to you by Behemoth Brewing. If you want to find out more about the old brewery themselves, head to behemothbrewing.co.nz. If you're based in Auckland, once you get a chance to be allowed to go outside your homes, then you can head to Chulies Brew Pub, the home of Behemoth Brewing, for a meal uh, for a meal uh, to check out how they brew their beer. If you want to see more about it and I guess all the current regs around COVID, then you can head to Chulies, C-H-U-R-L-Y-S.co.nz. Uh, thanks for being with us uh, again today. Look forward to having an interesting conversation with Peter Wolfcamp. I've known Peter for a very long time. In fact, we discover in this podcast that I've probably known him for about an additional 15 years than I thought I knew him from because some uh, connections from back in the 80s make themselves evident during the podcast. Also, uh, we do talk a little bit about another product that I'm working on at the moment. This that you're listening to is the Department of Conversation. The other product is called Elephant TV. Elephant TV is basically a debate series. Um, I don't think it's going to be an audio podcast. So, uh, I mean, it could be, but I don't think it's going to be. So if you want to find out more about that, we do talk about it in the podcast. Then if you go to Elephant TV, that's just Elephant TV. Uh, on Facebook, it's a really easy place to do it. Or you can visit our studio page on YouTube. Uh, the page on YouTube is DOCNZ Studios. All right. Uh, and what that is, is it's a, a page that's going to be hosting several different uh, products, including this one. So the video version of the Department of Conversation is on there. Uh, Elephant TV is going to be on there. We're also playing with a new product called Big Hairy News, BHN. I've uh, got a couple of little testing episodes up there that you can go have a look at as well. And also anything that I do personally on YouTube, like response videos or, you know, talking to the lovely people about Flat Earth stuff is on that as well. So the studio page, DOC Studios, is D-O-C-N-Z Studios. All sort of one word. Look that up on YouTube and you'll find... Uh, footage there as well and you'll find elephant tv and some other bits and bobs as well um all right hey um i uh, you're here at the end of the podcast i made a massive balls up a couple of weeks ago when i was recording pete remotely he was gracious enough to come back a second time and basically re-record the whole show we left it long enough that we didn't try to repeat the fantastic podcast we did two weeks ago uh but this is all new and some of it references stuff that happened just yesterday so uh, yeah very grateful that pete came back on had a chat again uh, enjoy the foreman from the block, the broadcaster from Newstalk ZB. It's Peter Wolfgang. It is a very warm welcome to the Department of Conversation. My former colleague, I can say that now, what I try and do, Peter, wow. is try, I try and get clout off people who are more famous than me by saying, I knew that I used to work with this person. Peter Wolfcamp, resident builder, um, what, you're the foreman at the block, all-round all broadcaster and building expert. Uh, thank you, sir, for joining us. Hey, look, real pleasure to be with you, Pat, and uh, lovely to see your face. And, um, yeah, we, we do go back oh, quite a few years, I think. Yeah, I was working at ZB. Um, well, for full-time, it was like, uh, it was for seven years and it finished in 2011. So for full time, it was, yeah. I guess that means 05 to 11, something like that, or maybe 04 to 10 and new job in 11. So, but part time, it was probably a couple of years before that. So I think I started yeah. ZB maybe 2000. I was floating around for probably early 2000s. Shit, well, that's only 20 years. 
Um, and um, yeah, I mean, look, ZB's been around obviously for for well for some people for all of their lives. Um, and um, I was lucky enough to to sort of be around you know the, the the edges of it actually not long after they started in about 87, 88, something like right. that. So, um, never cracked the big job there, but it's it's been a real privilege, I guess, for me to have been part of that organisation for as long as I have been. Would you want the big job? I mean, I mean, you're someone who was. <laughs> I mean, let me let me just let me just spell it out from people. You're someone who I guess was a builder, and then used yes. your uh, your expertise to come into a form of broadcasting. I guess as someone who can give advice and and give tips and, and tricks, and then from there you went further on in broadcasting to now be the. Um, let's should we bring it up, shall we? Well, let's see, we could do your like official kind of CV, you know, and, sure. then, and then you get uh, to be uh, the resident builder at ZB is on a, on a permanent basis. Um, and then from there, you've got numerous opportunities in television, kind of I guess, culminating most recently as the foreman of the block. So your broadcasting career kind of, as you say, around the ages never got, but it's certainly gone up. Would you like the big job? Would you like something in broadcasting more? Would you like more than what you're doing right now? Um, oh, look, you, you, it's not something I've ever actually genuinely pursued. I think I've always been... Um, reasonably modest in terms of assessing my abilities um and so I, I i think that we're you know we have a number of really great broadcasters uh which is awesome and um now that i'm doing the, the sunday morning show which is a, a regular sunday morning show in fact I've, I've just come in from a little job and just as i was wrapping up putting the gear in the back of the truck um the one a, a couple walked by said oh hey um, love the show on Sunday. Um, we listen every Sunday. We've just retired. We've got the time. We're about to build a house. Can I just ask you a quick question? <laughs> um, and, and so I, I think one of the beautiful things about radio, and I, I guess in that debate around um, the arrival of the internet and Facebook and all of those other media channels, um, what's the enduring appeal of talkback radio? And I think without being too trite about it, it does actually build a genuine community. That, that people who um, connect with the host and connect with the themes um, feel that they're part of something. And, and you know, the, this couple who walked by today um, said hello, felt that they could say hello and, and have a bit of a chat and, and enjoy listening. And so they're part of that community. And I, I, that part of radio, I think, is really special. And I don't think it'll ever go away. Or talkback radio in particular. But the the reason that they would have known who you were, though, would not been because of the radio. It would have been because of the TV. So they've they've yeah. made a connection, haven't they? They've seen you on the block, likely, yeah. and they know from on the block that you work on ZB, so they now know what you look like. I'm interested to your thoughts around being recognisable because in even in even in my day, which was only a decade ago, um, mm. you know, they had a they had a webcam. In the studio, right. I remember at ZB, uh, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, say no more. There were particular hosts at ZB who refused to have the webcam on whilst they were doing their show, yeah, um, because they were like, "I didn't sign up to be on camera. This is not an on-camera thing." Whereas yeah. today in radio, if you watch it, it's basically a television studio with audio. You know, all the shows have full sets and that kind of stuff. But how do you feel about? Um, I guess you've lost your anonymity through doing television, which makes sense. But yeah. radio used to be that community with the person whose voice you heard, yeah. uh, who, who could look however you liked in your mind. It could be Brad Pitt or it could be Danny DeVito, you know, if it was a male voice. 
they could look like anything. So you made up, but now yeah. a little bit of that. And I'm, I'll use the term magic because it's the magic of the listener having a picture in their head themselves has sure. gone. How do you feel about that in radio? But also for you, obviously losing anonymity doing through doing um, TV as well. Yeah, I'm pleased you told me about the webcam because um, I don't know if it, I don't think it works all the time, and I certainly don't have it on the studio when I'm there. At, um, you know, six o'clock on a Sunday morning, it's probably not me at my finest. But um, look, in t- I, I had a, a caller a couple of months ago, maybe even a year or so ago, and she was talking about a topic, you know, building topic, and then she went on to make a comment about the blog and um, that she couldn't stand the program and would never watch it, but obviously did at some stage, and, <laughs> and thought that it was just terrible. And she's telling me this, and I'm thinking, you haven't made that connection between the really what, which I am, and, uh, and me. So I think in some ways, I think for, for where I'm at, um, potentially there is an audience that um, we have, at, or that I have, um, on the radio that's not part of a television audience and then there's certainly a television audience that wouldn't um, ever tune into a talkback station. So in, in that sense, I think there is two groups that I'm part of. Um, and in terms of the anonymity... Or even uh, or actually, or even not, three, or even three yeah, groups. Possibly. Radio, the radio audience, the television audience and the crossover audience. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and... I suppose I feel like I've, I've been in broadcasting for a while, so it's not uncommon that someone might recognise the name or even recognise the voice, let's say. Um, but in terms of the television thing, that's been really fascinating. And and I think what is fascinating is because the block is now, it's, we're into our 10th year, right? So wow. it's been on television for a significant amount of time. And when it is on, it's on a, a reasonable amount, you know, three or four nights a week. And I think over that time, people do, as an audience, develop a relationship or rapport or a sense of connectedness with the person that they're seeing. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I was in the supermarket and um, just cruising down, looking for, I don't know, chopped tomato, a can of chopped tomatoes or something like that. And a, a woman who was also looking for something turned to me and went, oh, Hi. And then turned back again. And then I could see her sort of become a bit embarrassed. And she <laughs> said, I'm really sorry, but I thought that I knew you. And, and and the sense was, because I've watched the program potentially over a few years' time, I have a sense that I know you. Now, obviously, I don't because we've never met. Um, yeah. And I'm really embarrassed for saying hello. like that, And in such a familiar tone. Um, and I actually thought that was quite charming, quite, quite lovely um, that people do come to relate to you and and feel that they can engage with you in that way. Um, and look, overwhelmingly, people are um, unbelievably polite and respectful and all the rest of it. So, you know, I, you know, we'll, we'll go to a cafe and someone will sit down and go, oh, hi, you know, and, and that sort of thing. But it's never um, uncomfortable or unwarranted. And look, to be honest, I'm quite happy to have a chat most of the time. So if I've got the time, you know, and someone wants to ask me a couple of building questions or something like that, more than happy to chat. And the invoice comes through within seven days. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I've got a guy that I've got a guy that comes and mows my lawns. I love him to bits. And I'm he's the most impressive invoicer I've ever seen. Literally, as they're backing out the driveway, ding. I have an invoice <laughs> in my own. Like honestly, and I don't know whether he's like I'm dyslexic, right? And sometimes admin doesn't work so well with me. I don't know whether he's one of those guys that goes, if I don't do it now, I'll forget about it and it'll be yep. five days. 
but as he's backing out the driveway, I get an invoice for the job. Right. Just done. It's, right. it's a pretty clever. It's a, I, yep. I'm, I'm quite impressed. I, I like it. I think it's, I think it's good. So, you know, look, I've, you know, I suppose on a related topic, I've, I've been self-employed, um, I think since 1987. Wow. And I guess over those times, there's, there's been good times and bad times being in business. Um, and in talking to young guys predominantly who are in the building trade and that sort of thing and young girls now as well, you know, one of the things I'll say is make sure you get your business side of, of your enterprise sorted out um, that I've seen it so many times where um, young people who are good at what they do in their trades then end up becoming business people. That's not their first love. It's not their passion. And and we see it time and time again. It's a well-trodden path of sort of, you know, going out on your own, then finding it, it's overwhelming and potentially the, the business collapsing. And um, so I think for a guy like that who's figured out that this is what works for me, I do the job, I, I maybe he's got it zero or something similar like that, yep. um, then and he bangs that invoice out, great because he's going to get paid and he's going to thrive but you know sitting there at the end of the month thinking gee now what job did i do that yeah. Monday three weeks ago you know that that's we got to get better and and i think you know we should be encouraging um yeah i don't know more business studies and certainly people like ird and mb and that sort of thing if, if they captured these young people going out and starting on their journey to self-employment and and set up some really good business mentors or practice for them that would make a massive difference you're talking about being self-employed since you know since the late 1940s I think what <laughs> um yeah. what percentage of your life today would be kind of paid building versus i would assume that someone like yourself if you see a little project on the side you might get into it like a reno or something like that versus broadcasting like i'm, I'm i mean i could be wrong about the reno you can correct me but if there's those sort of three parts of your life which would be someone paying you for a job you know you doing your own work sure. building and broadcasting what would the split be for I, obviously i don't want to know your income but you know for your, <laughs> for your paid work sort of thing um, yeah look it's a fair question i think um certainly you know the opportunity to do more broadcasting and let's say broadly speaking work related to broadcasting would probably be 80 percent of my wow. time my income okay. now um realistically um and and that's a combination i guess of, of radio and then the television um i'm lucky enough to have the support of a couple of brands and and i support them so um you know people like Rosine Construction Systems and Metro Performance Glass, j &L and Bailey's and that sort of thing. So we work collaboratively to support what they do. Um, and then, you know, there's a small amount of building that goes on. But in many ways now, with, I guess, the number of things that I'm involved with, I'd probably be the worst builder to have on site because there'd always be, I've got to go here, I've got to go there. So yeah. I, I think, you know, if, if I was back on the tools, um, which I've done recently for some of my own projects, I want to commit blocks of time to it, pardon the pun, and just work solely focus on that. So is there ever a concern for you? Because, I mean, you're the you're as the correct title, the foreman for the block. Is that yeah. your, your gig? Which means, I assume that means you would ultimately be responsible for things, making sure things are done correctly, to code, all that kind of thing as well. If you're let's say spending 10 to 20 percent of your time in the building world hands-on tools so to speak that 
yeah. you the upskilling. I'm thinking. I'm trying to think of a, a, a professional way. I'm not the professional broadcaster here. You are. I'm trying to think of a way for the upskilling because I would imagine codes change. You know, when you're in yeah. the trade, you know, you would you would then be able to put it into practice. A new way of doing things. You know, the lintel's got a new way of being. I don't know. Whatever it is, sure. If you're not yeah. doing it on a day to day basis, is there a concern that you might fall behind and maybe you know make mistakes in that area? Yeah. Look, I, I think that's a real. Um, you know, it's a, it's a genuine question, and it's something that I always address to myself as well. So in the last couple of years, um, we've, we've managed to, we've bought a little property to do up, right, and, and partly as a project um, for me, partly as an opportunity to get back on the tools, which, you know, in many ways is my first love. Like, mm -hmm. like there is a part of me that is genuinely in my happy place, um, either when I'm in the workshop making something or... You know, the, the image that often comes to me is, is doing door hardware, right? Which is just that task where you just need to be solely focused on what you're doing. And it involves a little, especially traditional sort of door hardware, it's chisels and mortises and, you know, sharpening your tools and that sort of thing. And I, I'm absolutely in my happy place when I'm doing that. <laughs> um, and at the same time, like I've, I've just ordered um, timber and joinery and cladding and that sort of thing. Um, I'm going to be building a little 10 square meter sleep out. Now, not many times nowadays do you actually frame up. Typically all of our stuff is pre-cut, pre-nail or, you know, off-site manufacture. So, I'm going to be setting up the drop saw again. I've got a nail gun out. I've got to mark out my studs, do all my nogs, work out the rake of a seven degree, you know, running rake and da 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 da. All of these sorts of things. Cut my rafters, do my bird's mouth, and and I am fizzing at the thought of just going out, um, you know, set of headphones on with with music in it, and I'm absolutely in my happy place. So yes, I am very much aware for myself. Uh, that I want to be, I, I don't ever want to become the person that talks about stuff but doesn't do it. So it sounds like, it almost sounds like, I'm to put words into your mouth, that what was your profession and your first love, that'll be uh, that'll be ZB. I need you to come in for the big job. No, it'll probably be one of those bloody private caller things that we seem to be plagued with these days. <laughs> um, on the on the block, uh, I forgot what I was going to say. I forgot where I was going to go with that. Um, anyway, uh, I was, I was, we were talking about upskilling and we were talking about um, what you're doing. I was going to ask you specifically more about the block. You seem to be the person, obviously the expert when it comes to building, but also the person who brings reality to what's yeah. going on. Um, and I got a little clip here from it's, uh, Series 9, Episode 8, when you're talking about wallpaper. We might just play this. People give people a bit of an idea as to what we're talking about when you're Mr. Reality. Typically discovered on a Friday emits a pungent scent that attracts wolves, or rather, the wolf. It's not the easiest wallpaper in the world to give a guy, given that it's 1.30 on Friday, it's tools down at 6 o'clock. He's got still another room to go. Are you going to try and deliver two rooms? Yeah. Yep. Meg called it. Definitely. Yeah, there you go. So obviously uh, you were, without saying it, you were maybe bringing attention to the fact that the work that they had planned might be uh, unrealistic, perhaps. So is yeah. that is that part of your rule to kind of go, hey, guys, you know, what you're, I, because of my 1800 years of experience, what you're trying to attempt as amateurs, you, you know, you might, you might be pushing a bit far. You're the reality voice, the voice of sanity sometimes on the, on the site. Yeah. Um, look, I, I think that I guess on building sites, there's always that tension between um, 
fast, cheap, or good, right? Um, so you imagine sort of you, you want, ideally you want all three of those, but in reality you won't. You'll get two of those three, but you'll never get all three of them. Um, and there's there's all sorts of little gifts and, and posters and, and images around exactly that dilemma. So I, I guess this, and, and, and that's where the block, while it is obviously for television and so on, is not unlike our any other building project. It's not completely distinct from a building project. And um, so, you know, teams going, we want to do this. And I'm going, okay, well, if, if your scale is really big, can you also ensure that the quality is going to be to a suitable standard, um, and and people face that with their renovation dilemmas, or, or you know the size of a house that you might want to build. If I've got a fixed budget and I want to build 250 square meters of house because I need that space, um, do I need to then adjust the quality of the build to fit the budget, or do I make a choice and go, hey, I tell you what, if I, if my budget is this, I can do a really good house, but it'll only be 200 square meters. Yeah. Really so yeah. you know there, there's always those that that tension. Um, that dynamic, which is part of real life, part of building, is obviously part of the block as well. I would say I'm the kind of person that would certainly go for the latter. Like I'd, let's say I I wanted a four bedroom house, and let's say that was around 200 square meters. I'd be like, I'd rather err on the side of 160 square meters and have yeah. double glazing and have you know thicker yes. walls or whatever it is than push to 200 220 and have you know a lesser quality house. That would certainly be that would certainly be my perspective i'm about over engineering though as well you know i like the idea of i was watching a program oh i know what it was it's i watched that revolting program uh million dollar properties los angeles <laughs> properties. But they, yeah. they, was, they were showing this house that was built in 1928 and the walls were like i can't even get it in the screen they would have been like this yeah and I just went, oh my goodness, because here in Dunedin, of course, we think about things like, you know, solar gain and heat radiation yep. and that kind of stuff. And a solid wall like this would just be phenomenal for keeping mm -hmm. the heat in the in the house. So yeah, I like the idea of over-engineering. But what are you describing about, um, I wrote it down, fast, cheap, good. I used to build and sell computers back in the day. And we had a right. graph, uh, like the X and Y axis like this. And it would go, it would start down in the bottom left-hand corner and cruise along on a bit of an upslope and then it would take off be really steep like a hockey stick graph and what yeah. it was was um performance and price so in yeah. other words there's quite a long time and when the graph doesn't go too high where the price is going up and up and up but your performance isn't going up that much and then you get to the hockey stick where the price shoots through the roof but the performance shoots through the roof as well and what you want to try and do is get it in that little curve there the sweet spot, right. which is where you get yeah. the best performance for the best price. So as it just clicks up into that hockey stick, that's where we were suggesting to, um, you know, if they had a budgetary concern, suggesting to uh, customers, they'd get their best bang for the buck because it's where you'd find the best price for the best performance. Yeah, you can pay a lot more and you'll get a bit more performance or you can pay a lot less and you get um, a bit less performance. But if you find yes. that hockey stick, that little part where it up curves, that'll be the best performance for the best price. Yeah, and, and look, that is actually a really, really big um, issue, I guess, for the industry at the moment, for the construction industry. Um, a whole lot of discussion around affordable housing. Um, and then along with affordable is quality. Um, and so how are we going to match up those two competing demands um, that typically in the past we've said that quality uh, means higher price? Um, higher price means it's going to be less affordable. Um, so is our only option then to construct poor housing 
for people who have a limited budget and allow only those with, with larger budgets to enjoy the benefits of well-designed and well-built houses. Um, and there's, there's a, an enormous amount of discussion, which is, is great, around that. And uh, I guess we're seeing people um, try to meet those challenges in a number of different ways. And, and one of those ways is if we build better houses but slightly smaller, um, we will get a better outcome. Um, the other is, is a whole thing around just encouraging uh, the practitioners, people like myself as a, as a licensed builder, to know more about what we're building and build better through better techniques. Um, and then there's obviously issues around the building code and what our actual minimum standards are. Um, I, I, I don't know why I jotted this down this morning. Um, because there's no reason that you have had any involvement with Irene, but I did write down uh, construction controversies. And you were just talking then about yeah. building standards and building qualities and stuff. And I just thought, I, I, I literally don't know why I thought about this. Maybe because I drove past a big building yesterday, had one of the big white tents over it to do yeah. with, of course, the leaky house situation in the 1990s, sure. where obviously there was some massive balls ups made by by government regulations or by local body regulations saying you could do this Mediterranean style house that didn't have an even yada, yada, yada. And now we're, and now we're hitting that. Are there any, when that happened, did you see that coming? Like, were you, were you one of these builders that was like, this is not going to be a good way to build a house. And, and, and is there, is there things that still come up now that you kind of think wow. this is not best practice? Like, are you someone who, uh, who, warns away from trends and stuff because it may not be best practice maybe this is coming back to my over engineering idea like if a yeah. client was to present you with an idea and even though it was completely legit when it came to the regs are you the kind of guy that goes you know best practice yeah we, we really want to have xyz even if it looks good it's not going to function well how do you address those controversies in building yeah look uh, i suppose actually when you first started mentioning that i uh, the first thought I had was I am incredibly grateful for the skill and the dedication and the knowledge of the people that I first worked with. So, um, I, you know, in a sense, I never really did a formal apprenticeship. Um, I do have my New Zealand Certificate of Trade, uh, you know, Trade Certificate in Carpentry. Um, and, and certainly I've done enough hours to qualify in order to do that. So um, without doing a formal apprenticeship, I have done an apprenticeship sort of thing. Um, and and was have always been incredibly grateful for um, Tom, who was my first boss, yeah. um, because he bought with him, and he's a, a Dutchman like my family is. Um, he bought with him a, 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 a tremendous sense of pride about what he did, and he also bought with him a tremendous amount of knowledge. He was um, and is thankfully still around um, a, a very intelligent, dedicated. Um, insightful builder right um and and you know he i'm i'm like i say i'm always grateful to him because at lunchtime we would sit around and talk about you know you'd look at a truss and he'd go okay there's two forces working on a truss compression and tension when you understand what they are you'll understand how a truss works right. um and and so i think sometimes with our training we're just teaching people to do something put a truss up we're not always teaching them how does the trust work, right. um, you know. And and I had this experience of so we we're talking about that experience, those conversations um, at lunchtime in the late 1980s, and then you fast forward to sort of five years ago, 
and there's a young carpenter who's getting close to finishing his apprenticeship. He's working on site with me. He's doing air foam, air seal around the window. So today, you know, cladding on, building wrap, cavity batten, body blah, blah, window goes in, and then on the inside, you put perfrod and uh, an air seal. And he was doing that, and I said, why are you doing that? Um, and his response, well, boss told me to. And I said, yeah, okay, so he's told you to, but why are you doing it? What is, what's the reason, what is what's it the reason? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah, you know, uh, what's the science behind it? What's the, the, the research? Um, and to be honest, he was a little perplexed. Um, he just knew that he had to do it. He didn't understand that it was helping uh, to control moisture, that it, it works on barometric pressure, variance between high pressure and low pressure, how moisture migrates through a building envelope. You know, uh, the, the notion that, that moisture migrates through a wall will come as a hell of a surprise to most people. It's like, it's a wall. How does moisture get through there? Well, it does. And there's tremendous amounts of building science. So, you know, I, I guess I'm not saying that all apprentices are like that. And actually, he's a bloody good builder. Um, but it, it does, for me, say that we need to treat building as a science and, and, treat, and, and teach the theory not just the practice as well. I'm fascinated, I'm fascinated because, and I've got the most got random the most question in the world coming for you next. Sure. Um, um, I'm interested that you said not all apprentices are like that. I would, I would put the blame, the whatever, for that actually on the boss. Because it should be the yep. boss's job to teach that. And, and I guess the apprentice could ask why we're we doing this. But if the boss is not teaching that to that apprentice, that would be more of a boss issue, in, in my unqualified opinion than an apprentice issue. Yeah, although bearing in mind, you know, today most apprenticeships are run through um, various construction trade training organisations, and I, I have quite a bit to do with BCITO, um, and the apprentices that I have had a couple of years ago, um, you know, I've I've needed to spend the time to ensure that they're, they're up to speed with their learning. So, yes, the apprentice um, should ideally be having those conversations with See, this is where I, I quite like, you know, the old fashioned and the, and the tradition around building as well. So back in the day, you would probably have an apprentice um, who would then become, you know, a, a carpenter who might then become a journeyman who might then be engaged by a master. Um, and, and these are sort of ancient ways of looking at the trades. And you'll find it whether you were a goldsmith or a blacksmith or a mason or a carpenter or anything like that, there would be these formal traditional processes to go through. Um, and I guess in a sense, we've, we've kind of lost track of that. Um, but I, I like that notion and I, I keep it in the back of my mind when I'm thinking about someone moving through their career in the trades going, you know, you start as an apprentice, you then mm -hmm. become qualified, but then your learning should continue, you know, and, and, the, the lovely term journeyman indicates that you are on a journey and that journey doesn't end. You, you keep learning, keep developing, keep upskilling. Um, so I think there's a real story to tell around um, not just kind of, I suppose with all of us, we, we want to keep developing professionally. And so we need to start telling a story in the construction sector about what are your pathways and, and avenues to continue to develop and learn. I would think as well, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but the knowledge behind the science or the knowledge of why you put that in that place was it would be getting less and less also because you've already said today, 
you don't often frame up yourself. You get prefabricated stuff yeah. off off site. So if the wall comes pre-made, pre-measured from a factory in South Auckland, you know, to your site in East Auckland or whatever it is, then you literally don't even have to need to know what's inside because it's there. What your skill is actually, it's, and I'm not, I'm please builders, no. I'm not being disrespectful, but it's almost like more. It's become Lego, whereas before it was construction. If you were to go down to the nth degree. Yeah, and, and look, I think that's a, is it a criticism? I, th I think it's just an insight as to what the industry is going to look like. So again, um, when I started building, we would frame up ourselves and, um, you know, you'd get a great big packet of timber and you'd cut all your nogs, mark out all your studs. And I guess the beauty of that was that you were thinking about the whole building right at the beginning, because when you're building that wall for the bathroom, you're also thinking about where does the bath go, where does the shower go, where do I need to put nogs in, et cetera. And, and so you've got a much, for me anyway, I felt that I had a much better um, insight into the whole building if I was building it from scratch. And then, you know, that's impractical these days. So, yeah, typically you'll get pre-cut, pre-nail frames delivered and you're just standing them up going A meets B, B meets C, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, frame it up, da -da, and so on. And, and I guess we are moving to, and I, I'm actually a, a fan of this, um, increasingly off-site manufacture. I, I yeah. think that it is going to be a significant key to unlocking um, solutions around housing affordability. Um, and there is some real quality benefits um, to be gained by that. There's, there's a tremendous amount of efficiency. Um, there's a lot less waste, potentially. There's, there's a lot of benefits to off-site manufacture. Um, but you're right, the the, the the person that is then assembling the components on site may not have the depth or breadth of knowledge as someone who would have nailed those frames together. Mm, interesting. And now here's, here's the randomest question mm. in the world. Um, the guy that you did an apprenticeship under. Tom, yep. Did he live in Howick? Uh, yeah, Tom Buker. Yeah, might have done back in the so day. We may have met well before <laughs> because I went to Sacred Heart College with one of his sons. We were best mates and uh, one of the best mates groups. And uh, I spent a lot of time in that house overlooking the golf course. And I, I mean, you said Tom, you said Dutch, yep. you went builder. And I wonder if we can throw in the Catholic thing there as well. And I went, Absolutely. ah. Yep. I know. Um, yeah, that was. Um, not that anyone else will be aware of this, but when you came down the driveway, there was a house on the left and a house on the right. So I'm not sure yep. which one you were in. Uh, Tom built both of them for the family over time. And the one on the left-hand side was where I first, my first day working as a builder was a Saturday morning. And um, I, I, knew, I knew the family through actually youth work, which I'd done before I even started building and broadcasting. And um, they basically, I got into building in a sense by... Uh, knowing the family and then I might have been um, Joe, one of his sons, said, oh, look, Dad's about to start building a house and needs a hand. Um, and so my first day on site, I rocked up on the motorbike and uh, Tom went, oh, it's, it's Saturday morning. Uh, we were going to pour a concrete slab for the driveway, uh, for the garage. And when I arrived, this great big pile of builder's mix and bags and bags of cement and an old concrete mixer. And I went, I thought we were pouring the, the slab. And he went, yeah, look, couldn't get any concrete today, so I got some builders mix, start mixing. And that was my first day uh, building, was to mix six cubic metres of concrete for the driveway by hand. 
That is so funny. Like I never went into the house on the left. This is going to be interesting to nobody else in the podcast. So you can skip forward a minute or two. Um, <laughs> the, house the house on the left from memory was a white wooden house. The house on the That's right had the, had the big decks over that uh, yep. golf course. I, I spent time in house on the right. So it would have been 80, uh, 88, 89, 90. That yep. me and, uh, one of his sons, I don't mention his name because that's up to them, but um, we're at Sacred Heart together and spent a lot of time in that house. Yeah. Yeah. How funny is that? Wow. Uh, that's that's classic New Zealand though, eh? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, two degrees. Um, and then and I think from memory the son that I spent time with at school is now a police officer in Nelson. Oh, I yes, think. I know exactly who you mean. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. How crazy is that? I trust yeah. that bloody maniac with a gun. God. Spend a lot of time on the basketball court with him. I wouldn't give him a gun. He's for an awesome guy. China. Yeah, yeah. yeah, look, you know, one, it, I, I guess in life there's, there's always those um, fortuitous moments. You know, we don't necessarily plan for this sort of thing and and suddenly this arrives. And, um, you know, I, I'm incredibly grateful for my parents making a decision to immigrate to New Zealand back in 1961. And then other things happen in your life. And certainly one of the things that I really treasure in my life is, is the fact that I was introduced to that family, that I got to work with Tom for a period of time, uh, and and I, I feel like I'm a great debt because he was such a good teacher. Um, and and when I'm, I suppose, spending time with, I can say it now, young people today, given that I'm in my mid-50s, you know, I'm, I'm conscious about um, listening and encouraging and, and trying to uh, maybe imbue in them some of those things that he did for me. Um, and, and I guess for all of us at a, at a certain age, you know, if, if we have that opportunity to influence um, the lives of, of young people, particularly young tradespeople starting out, then I think, you know, we, we need to be part of that. Amazing. Amazing. Um, mm. I wanted to ask you about, it kind of comes back to the question we, we jumped away from a bit before about the fast chair good and the quality of housing. Yeah. I was involved with a reality TV show, um, gosh, who knows? 1990s it was one of those yeah we'll, we'll come and surprise renovate your garden you know and and with the, this and that and the other and my sister uh, her then partner they had a big house out looking overlooking murderway beach and um she set up she nominated him as a as a recipient of this um this this right competition and he got selected because it was the most spectacular view in the world it would have been great for television and so we all turned up on a saturday or whatever it was and spent a whole day completely redoing the garden like we were all volunteers like so that yep. you bring all your family along and they do all the work and you know i lugged around tons of those big blooming retaining bricks to build a wall and all that kind of stuff and yeah. at the end of it it looked amazing but i understand that the saturday after it was shot um he took all the bark off the garden, took all yeah. the plants out and laid weed mat. Because when this television crew did the garden, they actually didn't do it properly. Yeah. Um, and it was still obviously looked amazing in that, but it, it actually had to then get corrected. Uh, how do you address that with the block? And I know that you as the foreman, I'm, I'm not, I'm not casting aspersions here. I'm just wondering how it all goes because it's specifically actually the clip we played earlier is, is the, mm. the, the clip that, that I'm interested in. Obviously they're only laying wallpaper. That doesn't feel like a, you know, an RMA issue, but if there are timeframes, yeah. that means sometimes things won't get finished to make sure it's all to code and stuff. How does the block address that? Yeah. And, and, you know, I remember years ago, someone saying to me, Oh, look, you know, 
um, you're just building these houses for show and they, they just get bulldozed later on sort of thing. Um, as it happens, the first block houses had been bulldozed and there's an apartment block there, but that's oh. more, more clever than anything. Um, no, look, we're, you know, a, a big part of my job is uh, around compliance and regulation and code compliance, right? So, um, you know, all of the buildings have building consents. They all must be built in accordance to the conditions of the building consent. There are regular building inspections. Um, I conduct uh, sort of my own regular inspections, like two, three times a day, I'll, I'll be going through the houses. And the other thing is that all of the teams must engage their own licensed building practitioner. Um, and the, the beauty of that system is that anyone who is an LBP, um, there they are asked to and must provide a record of work for the work that they do. This is for all jobs, all restricted building work. Um, and then that is recorded and captured on the CCC and is available to anyone who wants to investigate. And all of us as LBPs are responsible for our work for 10 years. So, you know, we're not seeing shortcuts because people know that if what they did was somehow um, insufficient or failed or whatever, they would be getting a call and they would be held responsible. So, um, and, and, you know, at the end of the series, um, the final inspection process takes place. So a council inspector will come out, they'll go through it. Inevitably, there'll be a couple of things that we need to do. Um, and to be honest, I don't know a single builder who's ever passed their first final inspection. Um, there's always something. Um, we'll address those. Um, and just recently, actually, we ran all of this year's blockhouses through for the final inspection that was issued. Um, that allows me then to go and prepare the documentation for a CCC application, which has been done. That goes in, inevitably you get questions back from the processing team at council, um, RFIs. Um, I've addressed all of those concerns and the CCCs have been issued. So these, these houses, like all of the other block houses, are fully code compliant. Um, yeah, and that, that's a not small job uh, and it is my job. Do you ever have a situation where kind of competition comes up against certification? And obviously you're saying it does get sorted out, but I'm wondering if I'm thinking about a competition now, if I'm going head to head with team B and they yeah. don't get the plumbing done on the toilet correctly by, as you say, 630 tools down, which that obviously has to get rectified. Yeah. But as the competition goes, is that getting rectified by you and your team afterwards? In other words, it's kind of helping the team or does it, or do they have to come back and kind of finish it off at the end of the series? Um, yeah. I mean, in, in some cases, you know, there'll be a delay to their build um, in, a, in a week and they simply won't finish the week. Right. Um, you know, there are, there are some things that you can't go back and fix. You have to get it right straight away. Yep. So, um, and, and, I'm quite happy to tell people you just can't carry on until you fix that. Um, and, you know, would have seen on the show this, this year that, um, you know, look, like any project, there's always little things that you need time to go back and fix up. Um, and so this year on the series and the previous ones, we've given the teams, you know, part of a week to go through and do some remediation. Some of it might be cosmetic, um, but for some it's an opportunity to go through and just tidy up those little bits and pieces, you know, door hardware that might not have got fitted and all of those sorts of things. Yeah. Um, the snag list at an end of a job can <laughs> seem never ending. Um, do we know now, I mean, speaking more specifically about the block, as I, I'll bring up the page again, 
Do yeah. we have any idea yet? Because obviously it says up on the uh, thing here, uh, <laughs> coming soon, coming soon. Because obviously yeah. one of the big payoffs, much like any television program, is the final episode, which is the finale. The houses are built, the houses are finished. You know, I guess the people have gone through. But you've got some people here who have given up. I, I guess hundreds of hours of their time who are now looking. Hey, I want to. I want the. I want the payoff. I want to. I want to yeah. win this competition and take my hundred grand out of it. But then you've also got. Assume the producers wanting some some of their money out as well. <laughs> um, and you've obviously made a decision not to do like a virtual auction. You're waiting for the, for the actual, um, you know, live auction. This is live auction final. Is yeah. Any conversation? And I know that's a silly question because it's COVID, COVID, COVID. But yeah. what are the conversations at the moment around when and how that's going to work? Yeah, the, the conversations very much are COVID, 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 level two, level two, level two. So, yeah. um, you know, it's, uh, I, I know like all other real estate agents um, in Auckland at level three, you are allowed to at least resume doing viewings, which we've done again. Um, and uh, I, I think until we move to level two, we won't see an announcement around um, the date of, of the auction. Um, you know, it, we had a date, uh, it's been shifted. And look, this is, all of us, I think, have got so used to ringing around going, oh, that date's not going to work. You know, I was on the phone this morning, we were going to do a sort of charity thing in a week or so. That's not going to happen. You know, we're, we're all in this boat pretty much or all in the same storm. Uh, I realise that people are pushing back against that notion that we're all in the same boat. But um, COVID has has impacted <laughs> on all of us, and, and I guess the impact for the block is to delay the auction. There still will be one. Uh, it be interesting to see what it looks like. That's uh, not a discussion that I'm generally involved with. Um, but certainly, you know, I, I'm, I'm keen to see the houses go to the new owners. Um, hopefully before Christmas. Uh, I, that, yeah. that felt like a bit of a subtle stab there at the Brian Tamaki rally. Some people are pushing back. <laughs> do you do you personally have? Uh, if you're allowed to say, do you personally have? Like I'm looking at two of the houses look very similar from the outside. Uh, sure. That's the, the Tim and Arthur and the Dylan and Keegan. Then you've got Connie and Rach, Meg and Dan. Personally, do you have a favourite one that you like the look of, like the style? Yeah, and and I I think I've been you know I probably shouldn't have favourites, but uh, most of us do. Um, Right from, you know, obviously I'm involved in sort of pre-commencement meetings. So a meeting with the architects um, before, you know, a sod was turned on site, um, yeah. having a look at the drawings. And I, I looked at the drawings for, in particular, House 3 and 4, and thought, you know what, if, if I was building, particularly on, on a site that was constrained, you know, the 3 and 4 are relatively long and, and comp, you know, narrow sites, not terribly narrow, but... Um, it's. It, I think what we've done really well this year is um, provided a really workable solution that is, in a sense, a template for lots and lots of development. Um, so, you know, the, as people would be aware, prior to those four houses going on site, these are two adjoining sites with two existing bungalows on them. So by subdividing and resubdividing the sections, we've created four sections and space for four houses. They're good size houses. The, the beauty of designing four together is that the architect was able to orientate them in such a way that I, I think one of the biggest concerns about sort of um, inner city redevelopment is a lack of privacy. So how do you build for privacy? And, and one of the ways to do that is that 
if, if the buildings are designed to complement each other, you can ensure that, for example, you know, the, the courtyard of one house doesn't immediately abut the courtyard of another one. Or um, if there's um, a two-story section of it, that there's not large windows that look into your neighbours. And, and this series of the block, um, with these designs, I think that that particular problem has been well resolved by the architecture and, and by the architects and all credit to them. Um, so I looked at House 3 and 4, long in the way of saying I really like House 3 and 4. Um, I like that design. I think that there's something really cool about, um, and again, without sounding too architectural uh, about these things, um, one of the things that the architects were talking about is that they wanted to sort of capture a little bit of the sense of, of what inner city living in the early part of last century would have looked like. And, and if you've lived in, I guess, one of the heritage suburbs in uh, Dunedin, you know, uh, you, you, Marty, or, Marty Hill and all that kind of yeah, area. That constantly, Grayling, yeah. that yeah. sort of thing. What you'll often see is original structure, lean to, and then sort of an outhouse. And, and if you look at house three and four, they are essentially like that. You've got a tall two-story section, uh, a lean-to, which is the kitchen area, and then you've got like, I'd call it an outhouse, and I like outhouses, so it's not derogatory, um, living space at the back, which has its own pavilion roof. It's, it's light and airy. So there's lots of things about the architecture of those buildings that I really like. And, and to be honest, if I had the right site, I would um, shamelessly steal their ideas. <laughs> and look let me and say look, as me well say for people who are watching and realizing there was a bit of a, a bit of uh, camera outage there well well done on the padding while i sorted that out that was perfect so i can <laughs> see the right. people who are listening what i'm talking about but for some reason my camera decided to turn off and there was a, there was no a big, problem, black, big big black square here so you you're a, you're a professional sir you're a professional um, sir absolutely um, I'm going to do a shameless plug here, uh, but sure. it's really based around something you've talked about because you talked about, you used the word affordable and used the word quality when you were talking about housing, which is ironic yes. because last night I relaunched a product called Elephant TV, which is a debate series. And we did a debate with a property investor and Julianne Genter, the Green Party MP. And Ooh. the moot of the debate was affordable quality housing is right. And the reason I've got this page up for people watching is it's taken directly from the Green Party manifesto. I probably shouldn't say that because I'll say communist are uh, their uh, Green Party, you know, plans for and policy ideas that affordable yep. quality housing is a right. The shameless plug goes like this. If you want to go check it out, look up Elephant TV. That's the, the logo for it there. Elephant TV on uh, Facebook. And you can see that Julianne Genta joined us. Uh, Darcy Angaro was the property investor and financial registered financial advisor. And this blimmin' big, ugly, hairy SOB uh, was moderating the whole thing. And we talked for an hour and 40 minutes in the end wow. on, on the statement, uh, affordable quality housing is a right. It was live streamed and we had interaction from the people who were watching at the time. Uh, you brought up affordable quality and, and I yeah. want to ask you the same question, which I kind of wrapped up the, that uh, conversation with the debate with last night. And that was directed to Julianne, the, you know, the, the MP who was a part of, I guess, the writing of these policy ideas or policies or aspirations, whatever you want to use, is there are three, uh, there are three words in there that are relative. Uh, the three relative words are affordable, quality, and housing. You know, they can mean different things to different people. Um, I mean, we don't need to get into the rights or like the, the right of it, because my question was, so therefore, if you have a right, um, that implies to me that I can have my rights impinged upon 
And if my rights are impinged upon, that can have a punitive response to the person impinging on it. So if you give someone this as a right, um, then what happens, for example, if my house is affordable but not quality? What happens if my house is quality but not affordable? What is my house? Is it my garage out the back of the property? Mm. Is it my caravan? So when I say they're relative, they can all mean different things. But sure. I guess I just wanted to kind of bounce off you this idea of affordable quality housing. You, you used those terms earlier, which is why I've jumped back yeah. to it. Uh, being a right. I mean, when I talked to some contributors about this who I was talking to, I was saying, I wonder if more the idea of affordable quality housing as an ideal would be a better way to say it rather than a right. But then again, you know, we talk about basic human rights being, you know, food, water, shelter. Um, so so it's a it's a really interesting dynamic and a place we're in right now. And I guess from someone who, I, I guess, Pete, some people might look at you and go, you're contributing to the housing thing because you're making these houses in sell for $1.8 million and who can afford that? But you're also someone who's in the in the nub of it, you know, on a daily and and, and as a broadcaster, figuring out a way to speak to people about this as well. Sure. So I'd like yeah. to get your take on that the the rights of having affordable quality housing, the ideals. I I, I I'll, I'll stop talking now and I'll I'll tell you what Julianne said afterwards. But what what are your thoughts around that? Um, gosh, I mean, look, it's it's a massive thing, and people often say that and then don't give an answer. But I'll I'll try and be succinct. Um. Look, I, I, through my background and, and faith and all those sorts of things, I, I you know I do have an interest in um, I guess social justice, and I think housing is actually a big part of social justice. Um, and and I think we have a better society when we are able to house people well. Now, what that looks like and how that's achieved is um, enormously broad. Um, and, and some of the groups that I've had some involvement with, like Auckland Community Housing a little bit and, and, and others, they talk about a housing continuum, a spectrum of housing, and that will extend through to sort of um, public housing provided for people through to private housing. And then the spectrum for private housing is going to be incredibly vast as well. I mean, there's, you know, I live in Auckland, there's stories every week about a house selling for 10 million, 12 million, 15 million dollars. Now, these are obviously very a very small part of the housing market. Um, and then, you know, a young guy that I was working with on uh, Wednesday, actually, um, I've known him for a while, we were caught up, we were on a site together, and um, he was talking about the fact that he and his partner had just managed to buy a house. Now, interestingly enough, for a young guy and a builder, he didn't buy, he bought a brand new house. So there's there's just so much complexity. And and again, a little bit like the complexity around building, I think that we need to sharpen the tools that we use to dissect housing, right? It's it's, a lot of the discussion is too surface and too blunt. Um, So yes, I I think that we are, go back to the beginning, I think that we're a much better society when we have better housing. And then that is incredibly broad as well. And, And... um, there are elements within that. So security of tenure, security of, of housing. So, you know, if, if you're in a rental property and you're always worried that a landlord's going to sell it because, in fact, he's not really a landlord, he's a property developer or speculator, um, then that's not great because you put your kids into the local school and then the rents go up or the house market changes and suddenly you're moving to a different suburb. And so you've got that dislocation. Or if you're in poor quality housing and um, 
again, you know, I do a bit of work with people at the Green Building Council. Now, the great thing with what they're doing and others in that field is actually doing some assessments, like measuring the quality of the housing. Um, and if you go across New Zealand and you look at the quality, the average quality of New Zealand housing, it is poor. Um, you know, it's it's below average at best, and average isn't a particularly high bar. Um, I would say, and others would say, um, that the New Zealand Building Code, as it is at the moment, isn't aspirational. You won't get a good house if you build to the code, um, and that's up for grabs. So, and, and then, you know, issues around housing affordability. Um, you know, is it just, is it right that people, uh, particularly on limited income, potentially are having to spend 50, 60% of their income to provide housing. And then if that housing then is of poor quality, that's tough um, and, and arguably unjust. Um, there's also a slightly older curmudgeonly part of me that goes, um, it was never easy, never will be easy to own your own home. Um, and, you know, we need to be telling people that as well, that it's, it's not easy. Um, and, you know, recent changes to things like tax deductibility around uh, interest on loans for investment properties. Um, it'd be interesting to see what that does. I, I note, in, and we happen to be landlords, um, that something that, that hasn't been talked about at all seemingly is that if you, as a landlord, um, let your property back through a community housing provider or through the state, you can continue to claim the interest deductibility on your loan. Oh. Yeah, exactly. Ah, oh, didn't see that in the legislation. So that's really interesting. And, and you know, you can, you can say that that's a bribe. You can say that that's a coercion or it's an encouragement for people to let their properties back to the state or to state providers. Um, so, it, look, I, I find it an absolutely fascinating area. Um, I, you know, but I, I think where I would start with is, you know, I don't know what, like my, my experience was my parents bought the house that I grew up in uh, actually um, just before I was born. Mum tells a story about painting the nursery while <laughs> I was still in her womb. And, and I think any of us who are builders, you know, uh, our son was was born and, and I came home, ripped out the kitchen. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> we're always doing this. Stuff. But what, it, you know, I, I and I grew up in that house. Um, I had my whole childhood there and I stayed in that house until I left home at, at 18. Um, and there's a tremendous security around that. Um, and, and, you know, I'm not saying that people should stay in their houses for age and age and ages or that shifting is not a bad thing, but the security of tenure is... And that's a really important issue. Yeah, I yeah, think, um, I think um, it's, 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 it's interesting, interesting that you were talking about your experience. My experience is very similar. Very similar. That mm. I um, came home to the house I lived in as a child and actually moved with my parents. I had my 21st birthday party in that home because yeah. I was a student in Auckland and stayed home for a couple of extra years. Yeah. And then I had my 21st birthday in that house between 21 and 22. My mum moved, mum and dad moved to a new place because they were empty nesters basically with only me at home. Um, yeah. And that's when I also moved, so left home. So I get it. The house I'm in at the moment is a very strange house. I call it my West Auckland monolith. It's sort of a masonry block right. um, building. It's not particularly attractive. Well, it's not attractive at all, but it's incredibly functional. 
And I've mm. sort of made the decision that I'll be here for a 10 year period. And that's when my kids have finished their schooling. Mm. And I'm kind of going, I can already in my head, I'm already planning the next stage, but I, I've never actively thought that the um, security of being in the same space will be good for the kids. But as you say that, I think, yeah, well, I'm just kind of, I thought I'd do it for ease. It's like, it's a good house. It's a good house for the kids. There's lots of space. It's good for their friends. They're annoying friends to come around. You know, it's close to their school. It's close to, you know, bus routes and stuff. But actually it also would provide them some security in their lives, which is they've had turmoil. They've had, a, a you know, parents break up and they've had, you know, some of those issues. So as much security as you can provide is a, is a good thing. Um, mm. I was going to say, I think personally, the um, the solution to the housing crisis at the moment is sort of rent for life securities. I don't think that yeah. there's a solution in the building of houses because I still think how the hell are they going to build 10,000 houses when it already takes weeks, if not months, if not years to book a builder to build a house by itself. You know, and I think, so where are all these people coming from to build 10,000 houses? And I know there can be solutions like, you know, prefabricated and that sort of yep. thing as well. But actually, they could solve it a lot more now by changing the laws around giving rent as security. Places like the Netherlands, places like Germany, mm. places like France that have these things in place, the renters then get to basically have, and I'm talking metaphorical, but have ownership of the property that they sure. can live in for the next 20 years. Yeah. They're not going to get a call from the Auckland landlord. My son's coming to university in Otago next year. Here's your 90 days notice. I want him in to have that place. That's not going to happen. So I think there's actually an immediate solution they could do, which is to address, and they are addressing, they're making better for renters things like the quality yeah. of housing, but address things like that today. And that would make a huge difference for a lot of people. It might not change the prices of houses. It might not change that. But what it would do is for the people who aren't in houses, give them a lot of that security that you're talking about and that I'm talking about to be able to be in a place for a long time for security. Yeah, and I think, you know, we're starting to see that and and even the term build to rent um, has become sort of um, common in the vernacular around building at the moment. Um, and I would argue that five years ago, you'd hardly ever hear that phrase. They were there, yeah. but very few. So you are starting to see some developers, uh, which is a good thing, not a bad thing, um, actually going, we're, we're going to build, uh, there's a very well-known one in Sandringham, um, you know, it's, I think it's 12 or 15 apartments of varying sizes in a complex, it has a shared space, it has a shared laundry, the, the purpose of the build is to provide rental accommodation for people, and, and you know, there are going to be people that want to sign a 5, 10, 15 year lease on a property, um, mm -hmm. and if you're a landlord, What's the downside to that? You know, I, I think it's a great thing. Um, so we are starting to see that. Um, you mentioned the off-site manufacturer and so on. There was an article that I caught up with this week even. Um, Kaina Ora, as um, sort of the new version of Housing New Zealand, had just signed an agreement with a prefab manufacturer, I think out of Hamilton, to provide, it might have been like 60 off-site manufactured um, dwellings. Uh, and... and the part that caught my attention is that they were going to have those finished in three months. Now, yeah, well. tell me who out, or, you know, it might've been a slightly longer period than that, but, you know, I'm thinking, gosh, 50 odd houses complete and ready to move into them. And that time frame indicates to me that we're starting to see the beginning of that wave of offsite manufacture 
potentially making a real difference to affordability and availability. Yeah. Um, just to jump back into the part of this conversation, affordable quality yeah, sure. housing, right, to tell you what, the, the, what I got from talking to Julie Angie last night about it, and as like I said, people can look up Elephant TV on Facebook and go watch it for themselves, is um, I think what the Greens are saying, and you've used the word the, the building code is not aspirational, that this yeah. is their aspirational uh, target. Because I suggested that right. if this was going to become legislation, you might have to narrow down the focus so it could be legislated on. But I think what the Greens are doing is um, is looking at you know, an aspirational way to move forward. Um, and and that's that's what it is, possibly. I think that, Julianne, not to, not to you know, you, you use serious terms and people jump up and down saying there's no comparison, but they, she basically said, you know, 100 years before slavery was, um, was cancelled, was outlawed, people had aspirational goals to outlaw it. You know, there were people fighting for the abolition of slavery 100 years before it happened. Um, and they had aspirational goals, which people would have thought were ridiculous at the times. I think that's probably what the Greens are going for, these aspirational goals to aim towards uh, to make things better. And maybe one day they will get there, maybe. So that, that's the vibe I got from her about that. Yeah, I mean, like you got to dream big, right? And, and if yeah. you're in that particular dream big, business, that's your dream and, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I, you know, I think where I've found it a little bit sort of um, grating is, is this notion um, that somehow uh, property investors, landlords are, you know, greedy, self-centred, um, only in it for profit, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I, I think that that's um, a misleading narrative. Um, yep. and, and I think it's borne out a little bit by the statistics. So um, if you look at all of the investment slash rental properties that are uh, owned in New Zealand, um, of that number, 78%, I believe is the figure, are owned by people that only own one investment property. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think there was a lot of banging of the drums that somehow there's this group of, of property developers, speculators, investors out there owning numerous rental properties and somehow stifling the market and making it unaffordable. And I think that, well, the statistics would tell you that that's not the case. Um, you know, I, I think that for better or worse, um, you know, New Zealanders have come to see housing as uh, a solid um, investment. Um, and if you're watching this, oh, sorry, and, um, <laughs> I, was, I was trying to line something else up again. What I was going to say is, what I was going to say is, um, uh, it was a good thing to watch this yesterday. And for people who want to check it out, you can. Uh, yeah. Dar Darcy, the uh, property investor, is yep. someone who owns. He may have either three rentals or own three uh, overall. So yes. he's in that camp of people that you're talking about that maybe some people don't like. And obviously, Julianne being um, being Green Party MP, you would think that they're quite a long way apart, ideologically speaking. But actually, there was a surprising amount that they actually agreed on. Yeah. And I think what they both were saying on some level, from their perspective, probably that you'd say either on, you know, I don't think we have a far right in New Zealand politically, but further on, further on the yeah. right, more conservative maybe, and further on the left, uh, more progressive maybe, is that they were both saying those guys running the place in the middle, they're not doing a good enough job. So even these people who were at sort of either end of the perspective mm. kind of agreed on a lot of things. Now, they might have had a different solution to it or a different outcome from it, sure. but, yeah. but it was interesting to see how much agreement there was 
in that conversation we had last night about what wasn't working. You know, it's your classic right versus left. You know, the right things give the money to the top and it'll trickle down. The left things give the money to the bottom to support them and they'll buy things from the people at the top. So that's a that's a, a classic thing. And that was sort of what we ended up getting to, I think, in a lot of uh, situations. But it was uh, really interesting to see how much they were in agreement with what wasn't working. So it's, it's worth a watch for people yeah. who are interested. Um, and, and again, you know, I, I'm always the optimist, and I, I, I think there's some interesting stuff around social policy in terms of understanding who are the best people to deliver these outcomes. And, um, you know, I don't think it's unfair to say that the state possibly isn't always the best people to deliver these outcomes. Um, and, you know, Bill English talked a lot about social capital. Um, and, you know, part of their model was, well, actually, if we go to, to people who are professional in this space, right, people like Habitat for Humanity, um, DePaul House, Vision West, and so on, community housing providers, and give them the resources to provide the houses, and um, they often do all of the wraparound services, we will get a better outcome. Um, that, that they are way more nimble, way more involved, way more in touch with their local communities. Um, and I, I noticed there's a place not far from me, which is a, a brand new kind of order um, development. It's about 12 apartments of varying sizes, and that's going to be administered by um, DePaul House, who are a housing provider. Um, they're going to have an on-site manager there, and they will administer that building on behalf of kind order. Now, I think that's a really good model and will probably have better outcomes for transitional social housing than the typical model, which is, here's a house, see you later, you know, which is disastrous or has been disastrous. So, you know, I, like I say, I'm always optimistic and I think um, little shoots, little green shoots um, like that uh, are to be encouraged. Now, the most important question of the day is when we do see the block live auction, sure. uh, how, how long is the beard going to be? Because it's a good look. <laughs> It's a good look, and I'm, I'll bring up your uh, ZB page here, where you, where you look like a, you know, a clean shaven sort of a thing. It's it's, uh, it's a very old photo, folks. Um, <laughs> scary thing is, it's probably actually not that old that photo. Um, yeah. I like I like the look. I like the beard. I like it. I want to see it stay, obviously. <laughs> but um, people want to hear hear from you uh, on. Sunday morning, Nationwide News Talk ZB, 6 a.m. to 9 a.m., the res resident builder. And obviously, you know, keep an eye on TV3. I'm sure once the live yeah. auctions come up, it'll be heavily. Do you think, and you don't know this, I'm sure, will there be a point where they'll have to cut their losses and go, we're going to just have to do it as an online auction? Like if, if we were still talking about this in December, is there going to be a point where they're going to have to try and figure out a different way to auction these houses? Um, I guess if I was in their shoes, I would probably start to consider that. Um, you know, if, 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 if it was my money on the line, then yeah, potentially you'd, you'd look at that. I, I think we do want to have um, engagement, both from the public and the teams. And, you know, one of the great things about the auctions in the past was it was a chance for the teams to come back together, often sort of five, six, seven weeks after they'd finished. They'd had a chance to rest and recuperate. Um, they're allowed to bring a couple of their tradies with them. So it's a great opportunity for, for all of us tradies to get together. Um, and and I, I really enjoyed that. But that's got nothing to do with selling the houses. That's just us getting together and having good old knees up. 
Um, so yeah, in the end, I guess selling the houses is going to be important and there'll be a creative way to do that. Hey Pete, uh, people don't know this. And as if I was a professional, I probably wouldn't mention it, but uh, two weeks ago we did this and I completely asked something up and it didn't work. Oh, that and, was me. <laughs> no, it was absolutely me because I know what it is now. And two weeks later, you're gracious enough to come back and have a chat. And it feels like a brand new conversation. It feels like we could do hey, this again. We learned some things that we wouldn't have learned if we had just stuck with the previous one. So uh, the fact that uh, you've been in a house that I helped build is, yeah. is it's a real treasure. And then when you uh, eventually you know, start building outside of Auckland, you can come and build my house down in Dunedin. And then I'll be in another house. I tell you what, I was, uh, please forgive me, but I've only been to Dunedin once and it wasn't that long ago. Um, And I I had a moment where I could go for a bit of a drive and I drove out along that road to Port Chalmers Mm -hmm. and I was looking at the little boathouses next to the water there and I thought, no, that's a piece of me. I would be as happy as Larry and and something like that. It's a gorgeous I've I've always wanted for people who don't know there are there are old school boathouses. So yeah. you go around you go around both sides of the harbour. Oh, yep. uh, there are old school boathouses that drop off into the uh, you know that you have to walk across a plank to get to. Then they're in the water. Yep. I've always thought that would be an amazing. I could probably bring one up. Uh, I always thought that would be an amazing place to like yeah. have a studio. Uh, yes. If I go boathouses, Dunedin, I'll probably bring one up to show people if they want to know. Um, and go images, uh, this sort of thing. Oh, these, these are these are probably that's probably a demanding yep. one. There you go. Out yeah, over the water. Got some photos myself. I just like that seriously, I, I would be. Yeah, that's Portobello. Beautiful. So talking about. Yeah. Now, technically, you're not supposed to live in them, but I'm like studio in one of those. That'd be pretty Absolutely. dope. <laughs> that'd be awesome. Didn't used to live in one on the harbour at Palmasha? I don't know, but uh, but I'm pretty sure in Dunedin you're not supposed to live in them. They're not supposed to have permanent things in them, but I'm sure people have composting toilets in them and tanks yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Fabulous. Hey, Fabulous. Pete, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming back and joining us again. Thank as you, you so very much. Really enjoyed it. And um, watch Elephant TV for that debate. Sounds great. Yeah, yeah, and I think it was the, the only disappointing side for me because obviously I'm always looking for conflict, Peter. That's no, not true. Mm. Is that it was it was they they were in agreement on a lot, and it was. It was an enjoyable experience. It certainly was not blood on the floor and it didn't turn into a dumpster fire, which is what I was aiming Great. for. Great. So thank you. And um, Pleasure. Know, we'll talk sometime soon and good luck with the, the finishing of the block. Thanks, mate. All the very best.